Praise the Lord, his grace is greater than all our sins. I have shared the gospel with people many times, and sometimes I'll have people tell me, well, oh, you know, Jesus can't save me, I don't think. You don't know what I've done. I'm like, well, this is the words of that hymn says, his grace is greater than all of our sins. He can save anyone who will trust in him, and praise, praise the Lord Jesus for that. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you all. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 14. As we continue our journey through the book of Mark, we are in chapter 14 this week, and we are entering the climax of the book of Mark. It's all been leading to this, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll see the actions of Jesus' friends and his foes in these last days before his death, burial, and resurrection in chapter 14. And we're going to see many different things. We're going to see some worship him. We're going to see some seek to kill him. Judas, Judas one of the twelve disciples, betrays him. And they all scatter and leave him. Shocking as that may seem, because they're all going to say, never will I leave you, Lord. If I have to die with you, I will never leave you. But when the moment of truth comes, they all scatter and they all leave him. It's amazing to see and important to note that in this time, you're going to see this throughout the, the remaining chapters, that Jesus Christ is in complete control of everything that happens. And it's amazing to watch it, because he's in complete control of his death, where and how he's buried, his resurrection, his ascension. He's in complete control of everything. He's not surprised by any of it. He's not alarmed by any of it. All the events of his death, burial, and resurrection happen exactly according to God's plan. And we'll watch it unfold in these last chapters. In chapter 14, we'll see the plot to kill Jesus formulated and unfold. He will be anointed for burial. He will observe the Passover with his disciples. He will be betrayed by Judas, arrested, convicted, and condemned to die by the council of the chief priests. So look at chapter 14, starting at verse 1, and we'll go through it line by line, verse by verse. We'll probably get through the first 25 verses today. <coughs> it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so let's just pause right here. The scene opens, and here are Jesus' enemies, the chief priests and the scribes. And they're formulating a plan to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. And their plan is to not do this during the feast of the Passover. There are millions of people in Jerusalem observing the Passover. And if you remember, we just read not too long ago that when Jesus came into the city, you know, how did they respond to him, right? It was Hosanna to the son of David. You know, it was a big cheerful celebration. Here is the son of David. Here is Messiah coming to save us as he entered the city. They were laying down their garments and branches from the, from the trees, and it was a big celebration. And so they said, no, we will not do this during the feast, 
Otherwise, there could be an uproar of the people. There could be a riot. And so we must do this secretly at a different time. But they're formulating a plan to kill him, to arrest him, and to kill him. But Jesus has a different plan for his death. Their plan will not come to pass. Jesus has a very different plan for his death. And so that's how the scene opens in chapter 14. Now look at verse 3. The scene moves to Bethany. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you, why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's just pause there. Now in these opening verses, you see the, uh, the, a contrast here, right? Between his enemies, they're, they're plotting to kill him, and his friends. A contrast between those who hate Jesus and those who love him. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him and to kill him. And Jesus' friends were hosting a dinner for him and anointing him with costly oil. We know from John chapter 12 that the woman who, who uh, offered the oil, the, the, the pure nard, was Mary, Martha and Lazarus' sister. She's the woman who anointed Jesus with the costly oil. And Jesus is having dinner there with his friends. Now, look at who's there. Simon the leper is there, likely someone who Jesus healed from leprosy. Amazing the crowd here. You know, Jesus is hanging out with lepers and tax collectors and scoundrels. You know, people would always criticize him for that. So he's over at Simon the leper's house. That's how he was known. Hey, where are you going to dinner? Oh, I'm going over to Simon the leper's. Whoa, <laughs> you sure about that, Jesus? You sure you want to go over there? Amazing. So he's there, and they're hosting a dinner for him. And then Mary is there. Martha is there. Their brother Lazarus is also there. We know this from John chapter 11 and 12. And Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And his disciples were also there. So if you read John 11 and 12, you'll see that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a, a dinner party, basically, to just treat Jesus well. You know, hey, we want to show our love to Jesus. We're going to take good care of Jesus. And so Mary at this time is so overcome with love for Jesus that she gives to him likely her most costly possession as an act of love and worship. I'm sure she thought it through very carefully because this ointment, this oil was very expensive, probably close to a year's worth of wages. Because someone in uh, one of the disciples said it, it could be sold for 300 denarii. <coughs> that was a day's wage. So you're close to a year's worth of wages. I'm sure she thought about this very carefully. 
Oh, we're going to have dinner at Simon the leper's house. Jesus will be there. Jesus just raised my brother Lazarus from the dead. What can I give to Jesus as an act of love and worship to him? I'm sure she thought through it very carefully. And so she has this flask of very costly oil of pure nard. Now, nard is native to India. So I'm sure it was very expensive, very difficult, very rare thing for her to have. Very valuable. So imagine this for yourself. Imagine offering to Jesus something that would take you a year or more of work to obtain. I started thinking about that. I mean, I work pretty hard. <laughs> and it takes a lot to feed a family. And so that's a year's worth of work. Not a year's worth of savings. No, this is a year's worth of work. And she's going to give it to Jesus as an act of love and worship. And that's what she did. And she did it joyfully. She did it joyfully. Now she breaks open the flask and she pours the, the oil on Jesus' head. You can read the different gospel accounts. Some say uh, she pours the oil on his head. Uh, others, John says she, you know, it's in her hair and she wipes his feet with it. So basically she has used this whole container of oil and it's basically coming down his whole body all the way to his feet, and she is taking her hair, she is on her hands and knees, and she is wiping his feet with this oil. And the fragrance of the perfume filled the whole house. So everyone knew what was happening. Everyone's like, whoa, what is going on? The fragrance is filling the whole house. Now, not everyone at the dinner appreciated this act of love and worship, did they? You can see the various reactions of the people that are there. Some thought it was a waste and criticized her for it. We know from John chapter 12 that Judas, who would soon betray Jesus, was one of those who felt this way. You can see his words there. Why was the ointment wasted? So you can, you can almost see the scene, right? She's done this beautiful act of worship. She's down on her hands and knees. She's wiping his feet with her hair, and there's Judas criticizing. Why was the ointment wasted? It could have been sold and the money given to the poor, they scolded. And he wasn't the only one. It'd be easy to say, oh, well, that was just Judas. He was a bad apple. You know, he's always trouble. But the others joined in with him. They criticized also. It says they were indignant. They were angry about it. They scolded her. And I started reading this, and I was thinking, you know, some of us reading this today may have a similar reaction. Some of us even here might be thinking, well, why'd she waste such a valuable thing? What a waste. That could have been sold and given to the poor. Others of us might think, wow, what a beautiful expression of love and worship to the Lord. That's beautiful. And we do this today in our, in our own circles, don't we? Sometimes we see people worship in a way that we don't understand or appreciate. And, and we have those different reactions in our hearts. Some of us lean toward criticizing. Others of us lean toward being curious and interested. And I thought, you know, we should be careful with this. Because it's easy to, to look at the disciples and say, well, you know, they really messed that up. But we do the same thing, and we should be careful with that. When we see others worship in a way we don't understand or appreciate, let's not be so quick to criticize and judge. 
Let's instead, you know, be happy for them or curious or interested and not be so quick to criticize and judge because they are doing what they feel sincerely from their hearts is the way that they should be worshiping God. Now, I'm not talking about specific things that go against God's word. I'm talking about the, the charitable areas that aren't really specific, areas of maybe music choice or those types of things, or whether we raise our hands or not. I've been in places where people are raising their hands. Others are real stiff and uncomfortable. What are they doing? Or they sing really loud. <laughs> they, sing, they sing really loud in there. I'm not comfortable with that. Okay. <laughs> Don't judge them because of it, though. Let's be careful with that. So Mary is a, a, doing a great expression of love and worship to the Lord Jesus, and there the disciples are criticizing. So brothers and sisters, let's not be that way. Let's appreciate and bear with each other's differences, as the book of Romans tells us to do. Let's bear with each other's differences, not be so quick to judge and criticize others. Jesus didn't criticize Mary, did he? I love Jesus' response to these types of things. Jesus didn't criticize Mary, so, so why should we criticize others? Let's be careful with that. Notice Jesus' response. What does he say? Hey, don't trouble her. Don't trouble her. She's done a beautiful thing to me. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, I don't know if she realized that she was doing that. It doesn't, the text doesn't tell us that. But Jesus came right out and said it. And he's been telling them the whole time, what? I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. He's been telling them that over and over and over again. And now's the time for it. And he tells them very plainly, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And he also says this, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so it is right now. We are reading about what Mary did 2,000 years after it happened. What she did in worship of Jesus is being told in memory of her throughout the world. And so it was a beautiful act of love and worship. And I pray that we have that same depth of love and devotion to Jesus in our hearts. That we would be willing to give everything, to surrender all. That's one of the hymns that we sing. To surrender all to Jesus and do it as a, an act of love and worship to him. <coughs> Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Verse 10 and 11. Now Judas, he's had enough. He's had enough. He leaves and he goes to Jesus' enemies to betray him to them. Now, when the chief priests heard that Judas was willing to help them, they were glad. And we know from Matthew 26 that they offer him 30 pieces of silver for his help in arresting Jesus. Now, this wasn't part of their original plan, was it? Their original plan was to wait. We're going to do this secretly, not during the feast. But here's Judas. And he's here to help us. All right. So they're thinking, yeah, all right. This is great. One of his own disciples is going to help us kill him. Look at verse 12. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, that's the feast, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, 
Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, and where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Oh, and they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So in this section, Mark is identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed by the Passover. And he shows how Jesus' body broken and blood shed changes the Passover meal. We're going to dig into that. He also shows that Jesus was not surprised or overcome by his betrayal and death. He foresaw and knew everything and acted in accordance with the prophecy and will of God. Now the Passover is very important. It's a very important feast. It's still regularly celebrated and observed by the Jewish people. And it's important for us to understand the significance of it. So I want us to turn back to Exodus chapter 12. Turn to Exodus chapter 12 so that we can look at the Passover and understand why Jesus and his disciples were observing it. Turn back to Exodus chapter 12. You'll find this in the first 28 verses of Exodus chapter 12. Starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th, month, 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, 
and on, the, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the name of the feast comes from, pass over. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then he goes on, verse 14, shall be a memorial day for you. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. So you're not going to just do this once, Israel. You're going to keep doing this year after year after year after year. Throughout all your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on these days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. So there's very specific instructions here. And it's very important that they follow them carefully. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought you, your hosts, out of the land of Egypt. So it's a remembrance that God rescued them. God delivered them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. So it goes for seven days. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the leaders of Israel and said to them, Go and select the lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lambs. And now go do it. Go find the lamb, the spotless lamb without blemish. Each of you go do it. And then take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. So now they're supposed to use the blood and take it and apply it all over the home, the door of the home. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the, with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood of, on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this as a right and a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he had promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, hey, mom and dad, why do we do this? Not exactly how it's written, but that's what they're going to say. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel, of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And so... Jesus also, with his disciples, were keeping the Passover according to the book of Moses. So the purpose of the Passover feasts, as we read just right now, just clearly, was for the Israelites to always remember God's delivering them from the bondage of Pharaoh to new life and faith in him. 
The feast points back to that event, but it also points forward. It's a shadow of things that were to come. It's pointing forward also to Jesus as the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. His death would happen at Passover according to his plan, even though his enemies planned otherwise. So now back to Mark 14. And notice again how Jesus is in control of all of these events. He tells them who will meet them when they go into the city. There's going to be a man carrying a pitcher. Like, that's amazing. Follow the man with the pitcher. Ask him these things. He's going to show you exactly what to do. He tells them what the person's going to be like. He tells them the kind of room the person's going to have. And while they're having the Passover meal, Jesus predicts his betrayal to his disciples. One of you will betray me. One of the 12. One of, one, one of you who is sitting right now with me eating, he says. He knows and is in control of everything that is happening to him and around him. So why do we find it so hard to trust him sometimes? That's the question I had for myself. He can lay all this out with such clarity. Why is it so hard for me to trust him sometimes? Why is it so hard for us to trust him? We can fully trust him, brothers and sisters. We can fully trust the Lord. Look at verse 22, back to Mark 14. <coughs> As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank all of it. They all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now these verses are deep in significance. And they fundamentally change the nature and the meaning of the Passover elements. The Passover meal consists of many elements. We observe this with my family every year, and it's one of my, my boys love it. It's one of the favorite things to do in the year. And you guys know, it's like there's all kinds of elements on that plate. You know, there's the lamb shank, and there's the unleavened bread, and there's the bitter herbs, and the, and the egg, and all these different elements. There are many elements in the Passover meal, and some have come by tradition in the later years. But the core elements of the meal are the unleavened bread, the lamb, and the fruit of the vine. And you see those core elements here uh, in this story, specifically the bread and the fruit of the vine. At various times during the meal, the head of the household takes the unleavened bread, blesses it, breaks it, and serves it to others partaking in the meal. The unleavened bread reminds them that they left Egypt in haste. Remember he told them back in what we just read, eat it in haste. You don't have time for yeast to rise. You're going to bake this bread. It's going to be unleavened bread. It reminds them that they left in a hurry, in haste. And the head of the household does the same with the cup of the fruit of the vine. Actually, in today's tradition, there are many cups of the fruit of the vine, but the cup of the fruit of the vine reminds them of the blood of the Passover lamb sacrificed to save them from the judgment of God in Egypt. And here, Jesus changes the fundamental meaning of these elements. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to incorporate our Lord's Supper time into this, this uh, time of the message. And so we're going to go ahead and serve the, the bread and the, the fruit of the vine now.
So Jesus at that time, he's taking the unleavened bread. He takes the bread. <coughs> and as the head of the household leading the, the Passover meal, he breaks the bread. He breaks the bread. But now the broken bread represents Jesus' body. He says, broken for you. He says, take, this is my body. This is my body. So, so now it has a new meaning, he's saying. This little cracker that we eat, it's kind of, some of them even have like a bruised look to them because they've been baked. When we, when we take this and we eat this, it's to remind us that Jesus' body was broken for us. Take and eat. So in that same Passover supper, there's a cup of the fruit of the vine. Jesus takes that cup and he serves it. He passes it around. Each one's to take a drink from the cup. But he says something very different here. He's not following the, the traditional service of the cup. He takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, the disciples, they didn't understand really any of this stuff that was going on. And we know that from what we've read prior in Mark. But this is a fundamental change in the Passover the Passover meal. For Jesus to say, take, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He's now saying the, the, the fruit of the vine here, it's not just pointing back to our deliverance in Egypt. It's pointing to me, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so as we take this cup of the fruit of the vine, this little cup of grape juice, we're reminded that Jesus' blood was shed for us so that we can have life through faith in him. Take and drink. So as we drink, we remember Jesus' blood poured out for each one of us. Now, in these verses, there are echoes of the Old Testament scriptures, echoes from Exodus 24 and Zechariah chapter 9, where those words, blood of the covenant, are very specifically used. I want us to look at that. I want us to explore those. Turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. <coughs> Exodus chapter 24 first eight verses. Exodus chapter 24, <coughs> starting at verse 1. Then he, which is God, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered and with one voice said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, then twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And here it is in verse 6. This is the echo that we see in Mark's text. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. So Moses is taking half of the blood of all the sacrifices and he's 
throwing it on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. There are those words, the blood of the covenant. This describes the ceremony initiating the covenant at Mount Sinai. Whenever there's a covenant, there's blood. You can track it all the way through the Old Testament scriptures. When there's a mention of a covenant, a covenant's deeper than a promise. Covenant involves blood. Even in the Hebrew, there's the, the essence of the word is to cut a covenant. You're cutting a covenant. There is blood involved. And this, this is a nasty scene, isn't it? I mean, can you even imagine being there? There's blood everywhere. He's just taken the, all the blood of these animals and thrown it on the altar. And then he takes more and throws it on the people. So you're there in the congregation, and he's throwing blood all over everybody. This is a terribly gruesome and nasty scene. But I tell you, they probably wouldn't soon forget it. And so this, there are these words, the blood of the covenant. So when Mark writes those words, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for you, their minds, they know the scriptures, their minds are going to flash right to here. Right to here. And so Jesus is fulfilling this right here. Then in Zechariah chapter 9, we read these words concerning the coming king of Zion. And you're going to see these words again, blood of my covenant. Look in Zechariah chapter 9, starting at verse 9. <coughs> if you want to write a note in your margin, you can do that. Or you can turn there. Zechariah chapter 9. So there's, there's two echoes here. One is of Exodus 24. The other is of Zechariah 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And isn't that just how he came into Jerusalem? That's exactly how he entered Jerusalem, on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And so Mark, like Zechariah, he's interpreting the covenant as a promise that assures God's ultimate deliverance of Israel, even in the face of all these changed historical circumstances. And in this Last Supper, this whole idea is given a twist. Jesus' own blood now becomes the covenant sealing sign. Don't miss that. Jesus' own blood is the, the sign that the covenant is sealed and is true. Jesus' death is standing right here, and it's in the direct continuity with God's covenant of it, with Israel. First enacted by Moses in Exodus 24. Jesus' blood is the blood of the covenant. It's the blood that binds Israel to God. 
It carries a promise of liberation for those who are imprisoned to the power of sin in accordance with Zechariah's prophecy. All who are sealed by that blood, by the blood of Jesus, we're all taught to wait expectantly for the coming kingdom where we'll once again drink of the fruit of the vine, the cup of the fruit of the vine with those whose blood was shed for them. For Mark, Jesus' death both redefines and reconfirms God's covenant with Israel. And so we see those echoes there from Zechariah and from Exodus. And we read here in Mark 14 God's message of judgment and of promise, promise of new life, promise that we can be born again and set free from our sins. We can be delivered from our sins through faith in Jesus. Jesus has a message of hope for all of us today. So let's all trust in his sacrifice for our sins. Let's understand that his body was broken and his blood was poured out to save you and me from death and wrath to life abundant and eternal. Mary understood this message of hope. She loved and worshiped Jesus with all of her heart, with all that she had. Let's do the same, brothers and sisters. Let's always remember his body broken and blood poured out for our sake until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to save us. Thank you for shedding your blood, Lord Jesus, that we can have life through faith in you. Thank you for all of these things. Thank you that we can have a living hope in our souls through your resurrection from the dead. Oh, thank you, Jesus. We love you, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, please stand, and we'll sing our closing hymn.